Let me invite you to stand now and turn to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. I wanted to do something memorable right before I go on sabbatical, so out come the snakes. Numbers 21. It's that account where God sends brazen serpents among the Israelites and gives us a lot to think about. Uh, It's been said that whatever attracts your attention, whatever you're looking at, will eventually control the direction of your life. So it is here as Israel struggles with God's provision, so it is in our life too. Whatever holds your attention, that's the direction your life is going. So let us look and live uh, here from Numbers 21, and I'll read verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we pray, would your truth be evident to each of us, make the meaning clear this morning that we together might discern the way you have for us, and we might not just hear your word, but be doers of your word, and having discerned that path, we would pursue it together as your church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In November, Tracy and I were at Camp Eagle, which is close to Rock Springs, uh, west of Kerrville, and Camp Eagle has a wonderful deal. They have twice a year a minister's retreat that is pretty much free. So it's pretty much free, so I'm there. And we were there in November, and we, it's a beautiful camp if you've ever been there. Uh, It's right on the Nueces River, and we were going down to the the river to look, just beautiful. It's close to the headwaters of the Nueces, so the water is clear. And we're taking, going down these steps to get to the river, because it's down in in a canyon. And I'm a little bit ahead of Tracy there, and I go down about five steps, and she's sort of frozen there, and looking at the ground, and turns out I had stepped right over some gigantic snake that was located in the crack in between two stairs. I had just stepped right over it because I was looking at the water, and that's where my focus was. I didn't even notice 
this snake. Now, the story is better. I don't know what kind of snake it was. The story is better if we say it was some kind of poisonous, very dangerous, lethal snake. And here I was not seeing it because these glasses are not just for decoration. I can't see anything in my periphery. And so I step over this snake inches away from what would have been certain death. <laughs> and Tracy sees it and, you know, I can't believe I, his snake just goes off, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't want anything to do with us. And it all happened because I wasn't looking where I was going. I was looking at that beautiful scenery there in the limestone canyon and the water of the Nueces, and I wasn't, I wasn't watching where I was stepping. And here in Numbers 21, I tell you that story to say, yes, you need to be careful where you're walking. I tell you that story to say where Israel looked made the difference between life and death that day. And there are times, and I I do believe we live in a society that vies for our attention, fights for our attention, wants you to look at certain places, look at certain world events, focus your attention there. And as we do that, as we fall into that pattern, we take our eyes off of Jesus and we stop seeing where life comes from. And so Numbers 21 here, it's a cautionary tale. It's told as an example for us that we together as God's people, no matter what happens, no matter what kind of trial we're in, we would look and live at the Savior. I mean, this is our faith. It's not a dependency upon my ability to organize myself or work my way out of something or innovate or succeed. And that's that's where life is found? No. It's who you're looking at. The direction of your life is who you are looking at. And I hope the cross and I hope our Savior looms large in your view every day. Every day. And so looking and living, well, what does that even mean? I'm inviting you to look at the Savior. What does that mean exactly? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And first point, and there's an outline there in your bulletin, which proves, again, that I'm organized, and I know where I'm going, and if you want to follow along, uh, there it is. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is to look and live. What does that mean? Looking and living means submitting to God's way, submitting to God's way. When we are not submitting, we are looking elsewhere for life And we'll see here in verses 4 through 6 the ways that Israel got distracted, spiritually distracted from where they should have been looking. So look at verse 4. A little background here. Israel's in the wilderness wandering. So from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And here's where the trouble starts. Oh, and it's familiar territory for us, isn't it? Here's where the trouble starts. The people became impatient on the way. Oh, how often the trouble for us starts in the impatience. 
not what we do because of the impatience. That is troubling enough in our own life, in Israel's life, but the trouble begins with impatience. Impatience here, and oftentimes in our life, is a sign that we are not trusting God's will, that we don't want to go that direction. So you see here, the people became impatient on the way. And what happens? What happens next? Because of that seed of impatience that's planted, it sprouts and brings forth rotten fruit. And what is that rotten fruit? Verse 5, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Now, speaking against God here and speaking against Moses. Now, understand this, your pastors, me especially, I am not above criticism. And sometimes people fall into this trap of saying, well, well, you can't criticize Moses. Moses was God's representative, so you can't criticize uh, the pastor or something like this. That would be an improper understanding of redemptive history. Moses' place in redemptive history is over the entire Old Testament as he is not just a prophet of God, but we could speak of him as being the prophet of God in the, in the Old Testament. And as such, he is the spokesperson for God. These are things on this side of the cross that, that pastors are not. And so you understand that difference. And to criticize Moses, who is the anointed one of God, the leader, which is language I would not necessarily use on this side of the cross. We cannot take away, in other words, the special nature specific to that moment in redemptive history that Moses plays. Who appeared with Jesus at, the, uh, uh, at, at his uh, glorification there? So, the people speak against God and against Moses. And notice this in verse 5. What do they say? They doubt God's motives. They doubt his will. This is the fruit of that impatience. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? So they question God's motives. They are saying here, denying that God has their good intention at heart that God loves them, that he has a care and concern for them that was witnessed in his deliverance out of Egypt from slavery. So they're questioning God's motives here. You have brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. And, and notice here's what they say. So they doubt God's motives. They also doubt his provision. Look at this in verse 5. There is no food and there is no water and we loathe this worthless food. And it's sort of, it's a comic moment. Well, if there's no food, how are you loathing the worthless food? This is how absurd. People who question God's will and way don't make sense. There's no rational, logical sense here. Either God's provided food, and by the way, he has. Remember the manna in the desert? This is God's miraculous provision for them. So they are not just spiritually thumbing their nose at God's provision. They are denigrating it in every way. 
He has specially, miraculously provided for them when there is no other means for provision. He has given them the manna, and he provided water, didn't he? Yeah, remember after the parting of the Red Sea, there in uh, Exodus 14, they're delivered in Exodus 15. We don't even get out of Exodus 15. Moses' song, and then God makes the bitter water sweet. They're able to drink it. So God had again and again provided food and water for them, but they doubt his motives. They doubt his provision. That's us too, isn't it? That's us too. And so submitting to God's way is about receiving that which God has provided, calling it good, being thankful for it, even when it's something that's hard and difficult for us, not calling evil good, but calling situations not beyond God's control and meant for our good as he sanctifies us and works uh, in our life. So the, this is a rebelliousness against God, and we have to grasp it. Why? Because if you don't grasp how absurd they're questioning God's motives when he has delivered them, his provision of food for them, when you get to verse 6, if you don't fully grasp this, you get to verse 6 and you say, mm, God, you're kind of mean there. Look in verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. We will look and we will see if we don't understand how great the offense is, we don't embrace how what God did was actually letting him off the hook in some ways. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean the serpents bit the people Many people of Israel died. When they talk this way, all of them deserve death. And God is even in his mercy sparing some of them. And so what we see here is that they deserve death. Why? They all deserve death. Why? Well, we can read with our New Testament eyes, Romans 6.26, or excuse me, 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what happens here. Their sin leads to death. When we refuse to submit to God's way, when we question his motives, when we question his provision, when we doubt it, this is the way of death. We lack trust for what God has given to us. And so God is not mean there in verse 6 by sending these serpents. It is absolutely what they deserve, and it is only a view that minimizes our sin and minimizes God's holiness that would say, verse 6, these fiery serpents are uncalled for. Absolutely, they deserve God's judgment. And so what's the application for us here? The trouble starts for them with the impatience. The trouble starts for us oftentimes with impatience. We're blocked from what we want to do, what we want to accomplish, and the schedule that we're on. So we get impatience, and that impatience is the seed which bears the horrible fruit of questioning God's motives and provisions and leads to the snakes. So the idea here is we must 
we must submit to God's way. We might not agree with it, and when, we, when that impatience is creeping up on us, it is then we need to bring it to God. We need to bring it to God in confession and repentance. We need to understand that complaining, which some of us think is an Olympic sport, and we're always in training for it, complaining is a sin because complaining is an expression of doubt that God is sovereign, that He is wise, that He knows better than we do. And so when we complain, we are actually falling into the same kind of sin here that Israel is, a sin in expressing a lack of trust with God. So in those moments of impatience, catch yourself. Whoa, why am I being impatient here? Catch yourself. Take your impatience to God. Take your doubt to God. How often, and we're going into a psalm series, how often in the book of Psalms do you not see the psalmist come vulnerable and real before God? And God fixes the attitude and the heart. So if your attitude, if your heart is one of complaining, if you're stuck in, uh, and I do believe that one of the evidences that we live in a fallen world is how human beings always tend to see what's wrong and ignore what is right. And so when we're in that mode of being impatient, ask God to help you trust. Ask God to help you trust. The other thing that is noticeably absent here in Numbers 21 is a faithful Israelite who rises up and says, what do you mean this, loath, this worthless food? What do you mean God is providing? No one, there is no counter narrative. There is no faithful Israelite who rises up within the community to shout down those who are denying and not trusting God. And, and we are called to be that preserving influence, to be that influence in the world. When the whole world goes off a cliff, we say, mm-mm, not me. And when the battle for what is right, good, and just, and the cost and the sacrifice for being those things in a world that has gone off the rails, that you and I, we would be willing to pay that cost to suffer whatever comes and to commend ourselves to God and trust in God's provision in His way. So look and live. What does that even mean? Submit to God's way. Appreciate, give thanks for His provision. Trust His motives. Take our complaining to Him that He might change our hearts. So look and live submitting to God's way. And the second point here is to look and live by practicing repentance. Look in verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Here's the thing. Some of us need serpents in our life, spiritually speaking, to bring us to our knees that we might repent. Ah, the durability and the resiliency of our own pride. And what does God do here? He breaks through that pride. He can give you 
difficult circumstances, and certainly this is one of the ways suffering functions in our life. He gives us that which we cannot deal with on our own to break us of our pride that we might come to Him in repentance, that we might confess what is repentance, turning away from our sin to God and endeavoring after a new obedience with Him. So repentance is saying, I'm sorry to God, and endeavoring that by His strength we would live in new ways. That's what repentance is. And notice here, that's exactly what they do. We have sinned. They name it. They name it. They don't say, you know, we wouldn't have done that had you not done this. That's blame. That isn't repentance. They come before Moses as God's intercessor with them, and they say, we have sinned. They name it. They describe it here. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. We say we agree with what we have done wrong. And then notice they pray for change. Pray to the Lord that he take the serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And I want to commend you to the lost art of repentance. Saying we are sorry to God making amends to others, endeavoring after new obedience. This is what repentance is. It is saying we're sorry without conditions. And the amazing thing is God's responsive to their repentance. But notice, we'll get to it in a minute, he doesn't take away the snakes. He doesn't answer their prayer. He knows what they truly need, and he answers that way. They pray, take away the serpents from us. God doesn't take away the serpents. He rescues through a serpent. So God is responsive to our repentance. And you notice something at Trinity. Uh, you notice something in your bulletin here. We have a time repenting of our sin, confessing our sins. To be part of a church community is to, and, and come together in worship, is to practice this repentance. And Sunday, our worship service, because we have this as part of our worship service, we are confessing together that we share a sinful condition, we are availing ourselves of the grace and the forgiveness of God, and we are admitting that we need, to, we need God's grace together. We do it corporately together because we share in that. And this is the exact opposite of our culture, a culture that covers things up, that wants to blame others, a culture where the narrative of being the victim is very popular. Repentance moves against all of that and moves us towards life where forgiveness is found and where God pulls us into a position where God can help us. We need the mirror of the cross, so to speak, to remind us of everything that we have done that is wrong and how Jesus has come for us in spite of our sin. We are still loved and precious to him. At the cross, we find out that no matter how hard we work and no matter how righteous we think we are, it is never enough with God. 
And that's why he sent Jesus for us, to bridge that separation between a holy God and sinners. Repentance is life-giving. And I always, you might hear me, have, I've used this language before. I've talked about our elders and deacons. You want to be an elder or deacon? Be a first repenter. You want to lead your family well as a husband? Be a first repenter. Be the first one to recognize how you're contributing to the problem and repent and confess. So, two things so far. Look and live by submitting to God's way and then look and live by practicing repentance. And then what are we looking and living to? The Savior. The Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see that happening here at this moment in redemptive history, this episode points forward to Jesus here. And we see in verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, again, he's not taking away the serpents. People are still being bit. People are still suffering the consequences of their sin. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. If a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. How weird. Something bites you and you look at the image of what has just bitten you and that somehow nullifies the venom. But it points, it is absurd in its strangeness, but it points to someone, doesn't it? And we read in John, we have to read with our New Testament eyes here, in John chapter 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who would be familiar with Numbers 21 and what happened that day, Jesus says this about himself in uh, John 3.14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That is the introduction to the most famous, prominent, there at every field goal verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is saying that the mechanism as it were, the means of salvation are analogous to the means of rescue there that day in Numbers 21, all it is is looking and living, looking by faith to the source of salvation. Cease striving and look to the one who has worked on your behalf, to look to Jesus to make up for and to nullify our sin, to forgive us by faith to look. And we can say, what a strange solution. But as we look at John 3, 
we understand now. That Jesus lifted up on a cross is analogous to Moses lifting up this bronze serpent. And how God here, and we sometimes don't notice this, how in and through a serpent comes sin and death, how God in and through a serpent brings life. He crushes his enemies. It's the ultimate spiritual in your face to the devil. There that day, that if you would just look at a serpent, by faith you would be healed. So they look and they live. And we need the New Testament to make sense of that, that it is looking at the Savior, looking to Him in faith, resting upon Him, trusting Him for our salvation, placing our faith in what He has accomplished on our behalf, being united to Him, having His righteousness, His future, all because we look at the one who has been lifted up. Look and live. And really, that's the summary of all of ministry and the ministry of this church is to lift Jesus up. What is the great and grand strategy? What is our strategic plan as a church? John chapter 12 Jesus says this, John chapter 12, verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That is the great and grand strategy, so to speak, of this church. It's the great and grand strategy at the center of all our evangelism and all our life. Don't look at me, look to Jesus. Look to Him. The best ministry we do is lifting Jesus up that we and our neighbors and everyone in this world would look and live. Look, live, lift Him up. That is the entirety of ministry in abbreviated form here at Trinity. Our grand strategy is to point to Jesus to point to Jesus. He is better than anything we can achieve or accomplish in this world. He offers to us love unknown, a marvelous, awe-inspiring love. And so my encouragement to you as I head on sabbatical, so it's 12 weeks, it's not long. Uh, People can hold their breath for 12 weeks. I want to first say thank you for the opportunity to rest, refresh, and renewal. And my goal is to come back uh, re-energized for what God has called us to. Of course, I'm going to miss you. You guys are some, y'all are some of my favorite people. And so I love you all. We'll definitely miss you. I look forward to continuing on the other side of this, looking and living with you and being a first repenter, and submitting to God's way, even when we don't agree with it, to submit to God's way, to practice repentance, and to look and live to the Savior. That's what we're called to today and on the other side of this sabbatical. Let's pray together. Lord, how we ask that you would encourage us in our looking and living, if something has grabbed our attention, if we're 
too dedicated to something else, pull us away, pull our gaze away that we might look again at this Savior who is lifted up. And we pray as a church at the center of all that we do would be our precious Savior, He who has redeemed us from sin and misery. May we always lift Him up and always proclaim Him as the way, the truth, and the life we pray. And it's in His name. Amen.